We've been working through Paul's letter to the Romans over the last number of weeks. And uh, if you are newer to KW Redeemer, you can find the whole series uh, on our website, or you can find us on iTunes or Google Podcasts if you look for KW Redeemer there. All of our teaching series are there. Uh, this morning, is, we're gonna, uh, we'll, it'll be our final teaching on Romans, um, and then we're going to hit pause for the Advent season, and we're going to ramp up and just shift our gaze towards uh, uh, our God and His grace who, who came to us. And then in the new year, we're going to resume our, our teaching in Romans. But this morning, our text is Romans chapter 8. Now, uh, recently I was watching Monday Night Football, and there was an interception uh, late in the fourth quarter. And the moment that that interception happened, the game was decidedly over. There was still time on the clock, still game left to play. Players were still getting hit. People were getting knocked to the ground. You know, if you're uh, on the offensive line every 24 seconds, somebody's hitting you in the mouth. It's like getting in a small car accident as a 300-pound man smashes you in the face. But you could not stop the celebration. They were still getting hit. The game wasn't over. But when you looked at the sideline and when you looked at the players' faces, it was too late. The, the, the win was inevitable. And when you come to Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul carries that same sort of celebratory tone. He's like, you know, there's still time left on the clock. In life, we've got lots of game left to play. Lots of us are going to get hit. Lots of us are going to get hit to the ground. Some of us are going to get hit right in the mouth. But you can't stop the celebration for the people of God. Because knowing that we are the adopted children of God by grace, knowing that our faith is in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the win is inevitable. And it it, it enables us to uh, go through life with tremendous confidence. Romans chapter 8 is an interesting chapter because the first half really paints a vivid picture of the grace of our adoption as God's children. And this morning we're going to look at the second half, which really showcases how the volume gets turned up on celebration, inviting us to live out uh, in confidence what it means to be and adopt the child of grace and to be God's child. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No. In all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. Now this passage makes a bold claim about one of the gifts that we receive from adoption. And this passage is about confidence. It's about living a confident life. It's not about personality or uh, anything in ourselves. It is a confidence in the one who loves us and the one who adopted us. Now, the gospel offers this tremendous certainty. And worry and fear grow in the soil of uncertainty. And what what we have here is this hope that because the gospel is true, we don't need to lose our peace irrespective of the circumstances, and that's what the Apostle Paul is, is calling for. And remember the context, this is 57 AD, Rome, not a great time to be a Christian, and Paul is really encouraging this church that they, because of the grace of their adoption, they can live with tremendous confidence and not have their confidence drained out of them, living their lives at the mercy of circumstance. And what the passage is really getting at is that the foundation for our confidence today is rooted in the certainty that God has our tomorrow. The foundation of our confidence today rooted in the certainty of God's ability to hold us and carry us and keep us in the future. And so uh, in verse 26, he talks about how the Spirit is groaning and praying with us when we're groaning. And he talks about how the Spirit comes to help us in our weakness. We unpacked this last week fully, so I'm just going to give you a quick reminder as we go into the rest of this text. But the Spirit coming to help you in your weakness. In the Greek, the word help, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't just mean he comes along and says, you know, cheer up, chum, and gives you a little punch in the shoulder. The sense is that he comes with such force, he carries the weight. He comes with such force, he provides what's needed. It's like when you're helping somebody move and somebody comes along and says, oh, let me help you with that. But then they come and they bear all of the weight and you just kind of feel like you're holding the corner. The Spirit comes in and He bears the weight of our pain. He bears the weight of our suffering. He bears the weight of the hopelessness, those moments of darkness and despair. He comes and He bears the weight as we turn to Him and as we cry to Him. This passage is saying we can be sure that God will comfort us when we don't know which way is up in our circumstances. And this passage is saying that we can be sure that God is working for our benefit through all circumstances. So how is that possible? How can we live with this overwhelming sense of confidence, right? Despite circumstance, including hardship and trial and suffering and darkness and despair and pain and sorrow. How can we be sure that in the end, it will, as the text says, work out for God's good, for his ultimate good, for our ultimate good, and for his glory? Well, we'll look at three things. You'll see them in the sermon outline this morning. And the first one is this. This confidence is rooted in the sovereignty of God. When you look at um, verse 28, it says, All things work out for good to those who are called according to God's purpose. What is his purpose? We're such a pragmatic culture. When we think about God's purpose and his plans and his will, we think it's like a schematic that he hands to us. It's a schematic that he holds. We get glimpses of it, but God's will, God's purpose is something he does. We like to think of it as instructions that he hands out. 
We have his written instruction that's infallible in front of us, his word. But what is the purpose of God? It says, all things are going to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Throughout all of history, God has moved in sovereign, saving grace. Throughout all of human history, he has been drawing us away from our wayward worship of created things into the right and liberating worship to him who is the one who created all things. And so therefore, if your life is in the hands of God, the hard times, the worrisome problems, the seasons of suffering, they might come against you momentarily. They come against all of us momentarily. But they can't consume any of us ultimately. Because God's purpose has been from the beginning to draw us to himself in saving grace. And here you and I are celebrating that. And so, think of it this way. You know when a small child, maybe some of you have been babysitting a little kid. And that little kid trips and falls. And they look up at you. And what is the very first thing you do, teenager, young person, when you're baby? What is the very first thing you do when that little one falls over and they turn? You say, oh, it's okay, you're okay, it's going to be okay, you're fine. You start talking that way, don't you? And, and parents, we've done the same thing. And the reason why, the moment a child falls and they look at us and we say, we announce to them. You know, we declare to them the good news that they are okay. Because those little kids, they fall, they look, they're taking their cues from us. They want to know if they're okay. And so they look at the expression on our face. And if the expression of our face is, they start screaming. Because they take one look at us and they're like, I'm not okay. But quite often, when a little kid falls, and they, they have every intention of freaking out, and that little kid looks at us, and, we, and our, our face, and our voice, and everything, and say, our words say, you're okay. There's something about the words of saying, you're okay, that all of a sudden the child's like, I'm okay. Yeah, that's the tone in Romans 8 here. The tone in Romans 8 is the apostle Paul is saying, we are to look at the face of God, turn to him in the darkness and the despair of prayer, and we're going to find that our Father's face is, is always going to be be saying you're okay god's word is telling us you're okay i know none of the circumstances are okay i know nothing in your life is actually okay but you are okay i am with you and then this word it became flesh and it dwelt among us and then we have this empty tomb that seems to be saying everything's going to be okay if you can think of something better than an empty tomb and the defeat of death it says you're going to be okay. I can't think of anything. And so the word of God is encouraging us. This phrase, all things work together for good to those who love God, called according to this purpose. It is this bold promise that the apostle gives to transform how we face the good and the bad and the ugly in our lives. So let's unpack it here. It doesn't mean, first of all, that every little situation turns out okay, which is the way we, what we wish it meant. In our, in our flesh. It means that all things throughout all of history, in your life, mine, cumulatively, culturally, globally, God is working absolutely everything out because he is sovereign for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And by the way, when we talk about God's sovereignty, because as modern, as, you know, modern North Americans, we're like, oh, that's offensive to the idea of my free will. God's sovereignty is not in a battle with your responsibility. As we are all making our responsible choices and actions every single day, which we are responsible to make, God sovereignly rules and reigns over all of them. It's simply the sovereignty of God means we live under a sovereign, and it's him. 
And he's working it all out. He's not in the business of losing. He is a sovereign creator of all things. And so what this text is getting at is when it says God works all things together for good, it's saying God is not limited by the need for good things. He can accomplish his purposes through bad things, broken things, horrible things, dead things. What this teaches us is that when something happens in our life that we didn't plan for or desire or expect or want, we don't need to free fall into despair and worry because our God is not surprised. We're surprised. Our God is not confused. We're confused. Our God is not limited. We're limited. Our God isn't unsure of what he's going to do next. We're unsure of what we're going to do next. And so we turn to the face of our God, the one who has sovereignly drawn people to his love and his grace through all of human history, and we find rest there. And it is in the soil of that certainty, that gospel grace-drenched certainty, that our confidence grows. It's in him, and it's not in us. And so this promise is reserved for those, the text says, who love God. It's not simply those who believe in the existence of God. Those who in some sort of an agnostic way say, well, we concede that perhaps there may be an intelligent designer who created the cosmos and maybe there's a God. The text says, love God. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a theologian and scholar, makes a comment on the text in this way in his book, his commentary on Romans. He says, the apostle chose the word love God rather than simply believing in God because one of the best ways to know whether we love God or not is how we react in adversity. In the adversity, those who love God turn to God, run to God, fall on their face in God, cry out to God, close the, close the door, flop on their beds, and scream to the heavens. That's what the people of, who love God do. They turn to God. Those who don't love God, who are just leveraging God, trying to get things from God, effortlessly walk away from God the moment the adversity comes. It's not difficult for them to do this at all because they're, only, they're not interested in God. They're only interested in perhaps if they could get something from God. But this universe is not run by blind chance. It's sovereignly ruled by a loving father. And theologian John Newton says this, everything that is needful he sends and nothing that can be, uh, n- nothing that is uh, not needed uh, does he withhold. This confidence is rooted in the sovereignty of God, and it's a gift for those who love God. Here's the second thing. This confidence, it deepens. We don't just, we don't instantly have it. None of us, I'm not standing here saying, you know, um, if you just pull up your spiritual bootstraps, you'll be, you'll be perfectly confident just like I am. Uh, not true. All of us are, are in a, in a uh, lifelong journey of sanctification where this confidence is something that comes as we are uh, conformed to the Son of God. Here's uh, what I mean by this. Our definition of good and God's definition of good are two completely different things when you look at this text. At least mine. I was convicted writing this sermon, thinking about it. When people uh, ask me how I'm doing, I think about what's going on in my life, and then I'll say good or hard or whatever. And I basically always answer that question based on what's happening to me. Hey, how are you doing? And I think about what's going on, and I answer the question. See, we define good as the circumstances of our life. God defines good as the character of Jesus being forged in our life. Look at this text. Look at it carefully. 
What is God saying the good is? I will work all things together for good. If we think good is circumstance, we're going to read this text and go, oh, that means every little circumstance is going to work out okay. But what we find is God is saying, I'm actually going to take absolutely everything that's going on in your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, the glorious things and the sorrowful things, and I'm going to forge the character of Christ in you. This is how this text unfolds. That is the ultimate good. And you look at, um, at what this word conform means in the Greek. It's samorphous. It's not just a superficial external likeness. The Pharisees had that, right? The Pharisees were following all the rules. They were checking all the boxes. And Jesus didn't have anything good to say about them. To be conformed is this inner sense, uh, or sorry, this inner essence, sharing the inner essence, sharing the inner identity. And so what we find that God is actually up to is he is uh, bringing us into, uh, conforming us into the image of his son, the likeness of Jesus. Jesus is the master template. God's the potter. We're the clay. And so through the good, through the bad, God is using all of it to sculpt us. He wastes nothing. This is the goodness of God. Jesus is this master template. You know, in 1501, Michelangelo um, starts to sculpt David, the David. And it takes him from 1501 to 1504 to sculpt David. 17 feet tall, over 12,000 pounds, solid chunk of marble. And there's this myth about this young boy who comes to Michelangelo and asks him how he sculpted the David. And so the, the, the legend goes that Michelangelo says to this boy, well, I, I chipped away all the pieces that didn't look like David. And what we find Romans 8 is giving us is that what God is able to do since we are created in his image, is through all the circumstances, the good, the bad, and the ugly, he uses all of it to just chip away the things in us that don't reflect his image. This is what he's up to in you and in I. This is what he's up to in those that he has saved by his scandalous grace. He will build this confidence in you, church, by that same grace. He will do it. The Apostle Paul didn't write this text so that some of you could read it and go, yay, praise God, and others of you could read it and go, ah, you don't understand. I really have serious struggles that are really significant, and I need to read this passage with an asterisk. All of us read the text. All of us submit to the text and say, this is the word of God that is bringing hope to our lives, uh, regardless of, uh, of the, the challenges that all of us find that we're grappling with. This word of God is for you. Some of us will say we have a bad day, but it's, a, a, it's on the grand scale of people who are having bad days. It's not that bad. When others of us, when we have a bad day, it's like we can't physically get out of bed because the day is that bad. Some of us can talk about, we, we can flippantly use the term and say, oh, I'm depressed. Well, we're not depressed. If I say I'm depressed, I'm being, I'm being loose with the language and I shouldn't be using that language because I'm not depressed. Some people, when they're depressed, it's de dehabilitating. But regardless of where you are on this, on this scale, this word is for you to find rest in, for your soul, to turn to your Heavenly Father, and find this hope and this confidence. You see, in verse 29, Jesus is called our brother, right? And that should expand our understanding of adoption. Because if what God is up to, if his ultimate purpose is to conform us to the image of Christ, which it is, which the text says it is, and he will use every circumstance in your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, 
the wonderful things and the stuff that catches on fire, if he's going to use all of it to forge the character of Christ in you, which he is, and Jesus is your brother, this teaches us something about our adoption. It teaches us that we are not simply related to Christ by grace. We are also increasingly over the course of our lives going to resemble Christ by grace. We're related to him, and we're going to resemble him, and it's all by God's grace. He will do it. He is doing it, church. And even if you feel like you're at ground zero of that journey, he is doing it. This is, the pro- this is the work of the Spirit. This is what leading all the way up to Romans 8 is building. This is what Paul has been unpacking, justification and sanctification and being called and adopted and renewal and being Spirit-led and being Spirit-filled. He has been unpacking all of this to chapter 8 to say you can actually be confident about this because this is what the Spirit of God is doing in the, in the hearts of those that he has saved by scandalous grace and drawn into his family. And so... This is why, regardless of what we are facing, none of it's meaningless. See, if there's no God and Christ did not rise from the dead, your suffering is meaningless. Right? We can't, if, if, there, if Jesus did not rise from the grave, then we came from nowhere, we're going nowhere, we tell ourselves the little bit in the middle really matters though, but then when we suffer, it's this meaningless suffering. We just want to rage against the darkness because we're like, I've only got 70, 80, 90 years on this planet and I'm wasting it with the suffering. It's wasted. It's this time is your enemy slowly sucking away the good and beautiful things of this moment right now that we say is really important before we enter into nothingness. Suffering is meaningless, but if Christ rose from the grave, and he did, and there is a God who created the cosmos, and there is, And he does love us and save us and draw us and point us to the empty tomb and say, believe in Jesus Christ and I will deal with your greatest problem, which is death, which he did. Then none of your suffering is meaningless. Because he's going to use all of it to conform you and chip away the things that don't look like his son. He's going to use the suffering to forge in you his ultimate purposes, which you will enjoy, of course, for all of eternity as he restores all things. And this is why we can have this confidence we can look at these words that Paul uses through verses 29 through 30, this grace-drenched chain reaction. He says, God foreknew. That means he set his love on us. He predestined you. That means he planned a glorious destination for us. He called and justified you. That means he draws us. He takes our guilt from us. He gives righteousness to us. And then it says he glorified. And notice that he uses, the apostle puts the word glorified in the past tense. That's a future That's a future situation, but he talks about it in the past tense. Because even though there's time left on the clock, the resurrection says the glory is inevitable. The joy without horizon is inevitable. Life in God is inevitable. inevitable. And so this is the good news of the gospel. And before I move on to uh, the next point, I want to say briefly for those of you who may be here this morning exploring Christian faith, considering Christian faith, The reason why we have this confidence is not that any of us in this room are enough, but that Jesus Christ is enough. So if you're considering Christian faith, then what I need you to understand is that that, that the gospel works on the basis of substitution. Your religious ideas, cultural religious conversation, is not substitution, it's contribution. Hey, Jesus did his part, 
Now, what are you up to? You do your part, and maybe in the end you'll be okay. I need you to know, before I move on to this next section, that the gospel does not operate on a basis of contribution. It is substitution. And because it's substitution, because we will never be enough, but Christ is enough, and we are united to him, that's the basis that's undergirding this confidence. And so the next thing is this. This confidence, the third thing, is that this confidence, it recalibrates us by the grace of God. See, our, our hearts are like a compass, and they're constantly directing our lives. And the uh, Anglican theologian Thomas Cramner said this. He, he, well, this is a summary, but he would say this. What the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. We're just being led around by this compass. And the confidence now that we have, this confidence that the Father wanted to adopt you, that the Son has accomplished and paid the price of your adoption for you, and this Holy Spirit, he is now applying the renewing power of adoption in you. That will recalibrate your compass. That will increasingly, over the course of your life, cause you to engage and relate to circumstance and suffering and trial and hardship in a completely different way. It's the, the, that's the driving force behind the passionate speech at the end, when you look at verses 31 through 39, where the Apostle Paul is asking this series of questions. And he's like, who can be against you? What's going to hurt you? What's going to crush you? What's going to come against you? And he's giving this long list there, verses 31 through 39. And the answer, of course, is nothing. That's the driving force behind why he's asking those questions. He's like a coach, you know, trying to pump up the team. But he's not pumping up the team to say, come on, guys, let's pull up, pull ourselves up by our religious bootstraps and go hard in the second half. Come on, guys. Come on, church. That's not what you, when you look at Paul's words, it's, you know, I've been in a lot of, of uh, football locker rooms over the years, and it always sounds the same. They always say the exact same things, whether it's Little League or the NFL. It, they, the coaches say the exact same things. They're like, guys, remember all your hard work. Remember all your sacrifice. Remember how hard you got to get here. Remember who you are. And everybody goes, ah! it's the same thing every time. The Apostle Paul, what he's doing, it sounds like that, but there's one massive caveat. He's not saying, guys, remember all your hard work. He's saying, remember Christ's hard work. He's not saying, remember all your sacrifice. He's saying, remember Christ's sacrifice. Remember how hard you guys all worked to get your church. No, he's saying, remember what God has done throughout all of human history. Remember the sovereignty of God, the saving grace of God moving out throughout all of human history. Remember that. And rest in it. Verse 31, God's power. Verse 32, God's generosity. Verse 33, God's pardon. Verse 34, God's sacrifice. Verse 35, God's love. He's done this whole thing front to back. And so now we live in the glorious freedom of his grace. We live to his glory. We live to the obedience of Christ. We bend our knee. The things in which our hearts and our minds that don't align to the wisdom of God. We fight against those things to align ourselves to his wisdom. Because we have this great confidence of who he is and what he has done and what he will do. How many times in this passage, which is totally about confidence, building a case for Christian confidence, how many times does Paul speak about our competency? Zero. Because this confidence 
is not located in our competency. It is rooted in Christ's sufficiency. It is rooted in God's sovereignty. And so when we gather together for worship here, church, and we leave after and we go home to have lunch with our family and our friends and we rest in the it is finishedness of grace, you know, we don't have to drag our knuckles and bemoan our smallness. And we also don't have to sort of create some sort of a a super spiritual view of ourselves and inflate our own self-importance and leave this place trying to pump ourselves up to think, you know, marvel in our own greatness. We don't bemoan our smallness. We don't have to inflate our sense of greatness. What we do, what Paul is getting us to do is saying, church, fix your gaze and marvel at his greatness and magnify his greatness until it liberates you in your smallness. So that the thing you're going through right now that you have to deal with on Monday, the thing that seems to consume your mind when you're not thinking about something intentionally and your mind goes boop back to that thing and you worry about it, whatever that is, you can find great rest and confidence in knowing that God will use even that to do his purposes in you, to forge the character of Christ in you, to do his healing in you, to do his renewal in you. And so, I'm going to draw your attention to verse 36 for a moment. Verse 36 is a quote from Psalm 44. The Apostle Paul is saying, guys, confidence, confidence, confidence in God. And then verse 26 says, we're being killed all day long. And you're like, well, how did that end up in there? It's because he's quoting Psalm 44, which was written at a time when nothing was good. And the psalmist is crying out, crying out to God in Psalm 44 for the kind of confidence that the Apostle Paul is proclaiming in Romans 8. Psalm 44, nothing in the nation is good. Romans 8, God's going to work everything out for good. Paul is connecting the dots that God has a tremendous track record of using horrible things, broken things, you know, uh, burning things, that in the end to accomplish his purposes and do his, his good and glorious and beautiful work. And verse 37 says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's a word, more than conquerors. He takes two Greek words, puts them together. It's found nowhere else in the New Testament. He takes these two Greek words, which are, it's hypernikeo, and hyper, and hyper means, um, uh, it, it, it means beyond, over and above, super, and uh, the Nikeo means to conquer. So this could be translated, we are super conquerors. Not in and of ourselves we're not, which is sometimes the way that North Americans love to translate this. It says, we are super conquerors through, keyword him who loved us. Right? Through him who loved us. The temptation is to think, well, I'm supposed to be spiritual superman. I don't feel like spiritual superman. Something's wrong. No. We're more than conquerors. We're more than super conquerors through Jesus, who is Superman. You know, in 19, uh, uh, back in uh, 1962, there was a heretic named E.W. Kenyon, and he, and he wrote this. I'm going to quote it. He, this was his interpretation of how to understand texts like this. He said, uh, 
Understanding these truths will make us spiritual supermen, masters of demon and disease. It will be the end of weakness and failure. There will be no struggle for faith and all things are ours. And we will go out and live as supermen and dwelt by God. And that is dead wrong. That's a disgusting heresy that got vomited across America. And then Canada caught the cold. And then we vomited it all across our country. And so for the last 50 years, the prosperity gospel has sort of co-opted what this actually means to be more than a conqueror. And uh, so the, 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 the who's who of the word faith movement in 1985, they all got together. They became multimillionaires as, as they just kind of preached this thing and said, here's how you become more than a conqueror, guys. You up your prayer, you up your Bible reading, and most importantly, you up the money that you give to my ministry. And they just vomited that thing across North America, and we've been paying for it ever since. And that is why, even today as we look at this text, and I'm trying to tell you that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, as Paul said it, we have difficulty believing that because we are so thoroughly baptized in the idea of, of, of the, this meaning a transformation of circumstance. What Paul is saying is, you're united to the death-proof savior of the universe. You are united to Superman. Jesus is the Superman. And we are now more than conquerors through him. And that means united to the death-proof savior of the universe who is holding the world together with the word of his power. Nothing can ultimately harm you. And that transforms the confidence through which we go through the hardships and the trials and the sufferings of the day. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. No capes. We're not super. He's super. And because of that, the text has the audacity to call us conquerors through him who loved us. And I close with this. The Apostle Paul raises his voice and he writes in all caps to shake us out of, you know, the... the, the sadness that comes with our trials so that we can remember who we are remember that we're children of grace so that we can face life with a humble confidence turn our backs away from crippling worry and fear towards the goodness of our savior towards god in prayer towards god in worship teach our children to do the same to turn to him where their help comes from in the words of dr john o'leinbaugh who's a professor at uh, Oxford. He says it this way, behind all suffering is Satan fighting for his life in a battle that he's already lost in a war that he will decisively and forever lose. Yeah, there's time on the clock, but the win is inevitable. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen.